in the last few weeks, things have started to look up for a lot of people. But that said, we also know that far too many Canadians are still struggling. If you're having troubles finding a job, you shouldn't also be worrying about whether you'll hit the limit of your CERB benefits. So right now, we're working on a solution to extend the benefit for people who can't return to work yet. We'll have more details later this week, but for today, I want you to know that we will continue to be there for you and your family. Whew! That was our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. He's there for us, for our families, for you individually. And uh, odds are that later in the week will actually turn out to be this afternoon. He will have more details on the extension of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit uh, for Canadians who still can't return to work because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Canadians can only claim that benefit for 16 weeks or four pay periods. So the program's fourth period, early July, is fast approaching. Now, yesterday, the Treasury Board president said that when Mr. Trudeau said we were going to be there for Canadians, it means something's going to be announced, but we want to do things properly. So it's not a matter of extending or adjusting. Um, That's why we still need a few more hours, a few more days to make sure that Canadians understand what Mr. Trudeau said this morning, which now has me incredibly confused. Will the CERB um, be extended? Uh, Without it, we would have been lost. There's no doubt about it. But do we still need it? How important is it to the health of our economy? Here to talk about that is uh, Professor Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, uh, Kelly. Now, the CERB, it's helpful and it can't last forever. So what are your thoughts on what this announcement is going to be all about? Uh, it has turned out, the CERB has turned out to be the single most expensive program, understandably, because there's lots of people out there that lost their job. Um, and, and I've supported the CERB. I think everybody has supported the CERB, people in the business community, not that I speak for them. I do not consult to them, uh, but I think they've supported it. The issue is not, is the CERB, should we support the CERB? The, 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 um, the question is, how do we wind it down? How do we um, exit from the CERB? I say that that's the real question because I think most people will, who are honest will acknowledge that the number of cases uh, infections are declining dramatically, number of uh, deaths are declining dramatically, the economy is returning to work, uh, businesses are reopening. This, this is not, cannot be denied. Uh, and so that's going to now force us to confront a, an issue that has arisen where uh, there are reports daily of of employers saying, I, I can't get my former employees to come back to work because they're saying, hey, no, thank you. I'm making more on the CERB. And so what that means is, uh, unless you assume that the uh, resources of the government of Canada are infinite, and I am one who does not believe that, neither does David Dodge, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, and neither does the former liberal acting liberal leader Bob Ray, who was on CBC Power and Politics two, years, two weeks ago, and he said, quote, the government of Canada is not an ATM machine. And he was uh, Jean Charest, a former liberal premier of Quebec, agreed with him, as did um, former leader, uh, uh, I think it was former premier, Desange, from B.C., and all three agreed with that. So where I'm going with this is I wished Mr. Trudeau, he didn't. He kept saying, I'm behind you. We've got your back, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's all very nice. But he should have said, look, people, this cannot go on forever. 
Now we've got to figure out a way to work it down. In other words, there are people who will will have to continue to be on the CERB because there will be no job to go back to because their employer has failed, has, has gone bankrupt. But should the government others, be looking at, and this might be a naive question, but should the government be looking at increasing that minimum wage right now or bringing us up to, a, um, you know, our... Um, service industry jobs up to a living wage, because that's that's the big question mark there. There's a right. lot of, I've heard more than a few young people say to me, and I'm talking about young people somewhere in their 20s, right. say, um, you know what, I'm actually just getting by on the CERB, but it's, it's mm-hmm. just as good, if not better than my job, because I may have made a little more of my job, but now I have all this free time and, yeah. you know, I'm living my life and I'm still making enough money to eat by. Basically, that there's there are a lot of people that are saying our service industries do not pay enough to their employees. So where's I, the fix? Right. I, I'm, I'm very aware of that argument. I uh, did a lot of research on this. I published a couple of op-eds a couple of years ago, and I was using StatScan data because I don't use anything else. And yeah. um, and what and by the way, there's just a ton of research in Canada, the U.S., and elsewhere on on raising the minimum wage. Um, I don't think, although my, some might disagree with me. I don't think that that's an answer for a couple of reasons. Number one, there is no question that when you raise the minimum wage, um, employers get rid of uh, their minimum wage labor. All we have to do is go back two years ago in Ontario. What happened when Kathleen Wynne raised it from 11 to 15? Loblaws, Home Depot, I'm not picking on these companies, I'm just giving examples. Canadian Tire, Walmart installed tons of automated checkout counters. Uh, why? Hmm. Because, and I've actually seen studies, really good studies, my students found one, showing the cost of an um, uh, automated checkout counter machine versus the cost of wages doing a, a checkout with a, a live human being. And, and it's, it's incredibly, uh, the break-even point is very soon, and it's much cheaper, especially as wages go up, to simply automate those jobs out. And that's what employers. But you are doing. know, we're but you know, in a, in a pandemic, we're going to have to look at things differently, and a lot of jobs will be automated, and and that will be for safety reasons. So that could be inevitable as we move forward. It could forward. be, but if if then the argument is, well, then we're going to have naturally higher unemployment. That's not the record of three hundred years. People have been arguing for three hundred years that technology and automation is going to create massive unemployment, and what we've learned is that uh, automation and technology creates more jobs than it destroys, and it creates typically better jobs than the ones it destroys. And uh, so that's the first argument. The second, I just want to deal with the social justice argument or the fairness of the equity argument. And this argument that, you know, there's large numbers of people, you know, dependent on minimum wage and, you know, they're suffering and so forth. That's simply not true. 10% of people are on minimum wage. That means 90% of Canadians that work are not. Nine out of ten. Now let's look at the ten percent. Are they, you know, people supporting, you know, a family of four, you know, that sort of thing? Nonsense. Statistical nonsense. Seventy-five percent of all the people on minimum wage are people living at home with their parents, and they're going to school, and they're their high school or college or university. It's and then there are some seniors who are doing it to supplement their old age pension guaranteed income supplement and so forth. So the idea that there's anybody out there completely dependent on their minimum wage is a statistically infinitesimally tiny number of people. And if that's the case, that's an argument for a, a, a negative income tax, uh, uh, in other words, doing it through the state or a guaranteed annual income. We can get into that debate if you want. But it's, I, I don't believe that the role is it's the role of the uh, private sector of employers 
uh, to raise that cost. Keep in mind, I want to point one more thing out I forgot. Big corporations don't pay minimum wage. And I worked in a big corporation. I worked in two or three. Okay, I worked in Canada Post. I worked in the Bank of Montreal. I worked at AFCO. Who pays minimum wage? Small businesses. Small businesses are hanging on by their fingernails. So you Yeah, but what about the, the mob wages. losses out there? Sorry? They play mi- what about There's, mob laws? They're the, the, in the retail space, and I'm talking uh, fast food and the cash out, the checkout counters, they are paying minimum wage, but those jobs are being automated out anyways. So those jobs are disappearing. So my point is, is, is that, first off, very small numbers of 10% of the jobs are minimum wage, number one. Number two, they're overwhelmingly young people living at home whose full-time activity, if you want to call it that, is they're going to work. In other words, it's a bridge to the future. And for any of your listeners who are saying, oh, you know, that professor's in the ivory tower, he doesn't know anything about it. I actually was, after I dropped out of high school, for three years, I bummed around from minimum wage jobs to unemployment insurance to minimum wage job. So I know a lot about being on minimum wage. Okay, and what it was was the bridge, the catalyst, the kick in my backside to go back to school. And yeah, but I didn't have also back training. then things weren't. I mean, no, you know, I don't want to age you. I don't want to age you. Sorry, I don't want to age you, but it's also. I mean, if you went back to school, it certainly wasn't as expensive as it is now. Um. Uh, well, it's all relative to the, the the price level at the time. I mean, yeah, of course, tuition was much lower, but so were wages. I mean, minimum wage back then was a dollar yeah, twenty-five an hour. Even if you even if you adjusted, wouldn't it be twenty thousand dollars? Is a lot of money for a school year. Average the average tuition for a university right now in Canada for a domestic student, meaning not a foreign student, is about eight yeah. nine thousand dollars. Okay, well, I guess I'm looking at other uh, other programs because I got a I got twenty thousand from a friend just recently. Yeah, no, it is the number. You're looking from... at undergraduate, and we're not talking specialty programs like you know veterinarian or something like that. You're looking at a BA degree, a BCom degree, a BANG degree, and because tuition fees are regulated across Canada by the ministries of education, and uh, I um, and I'm not talking. There may be some private schools out there that I'm not aware of because most of the universities in Canada and colleges are are owned by the there's their state universities like my university and Waterloo and U of T right. and New York and Sheridan College so... and so forth. And they're well, regulated. I know we can totally get off topic here, but like, let's yeah. get back onto the CERB. Okay. Um, so, what do you think needs to be done with regard to the CERB? Because it can't last forever. Well, that's uh, my point. Are you going to see it extend for a couple more months? Yes. And then, how would you propose they wind it down? But there's 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 two ways to wind it down. Um, uh, first off, yes, they have to extend it. So I'm not trying to be draconian here and saying just throw them, throw them to the wolves. Um, uh, there's, it's got to be extended because there will be people that need it. Secondly, there, it should be sunsetted, yes, for, say, 90 days. Thirdly, I think that they should say they should wind it down in the following way and say, okay, if you've been on the CERB once at 2000 a month, the, if you get renewed for another 90 days, it'll be at 1500 a month. And if there's a third CERB, which I'm guessing there will be a, a residual third CERB, it'll come down to 1000 a month. In other words, you, you, you wean them off. And right now, you have the, those people on the CERB who are den- refusing a job because they're saying, hey, I'm on the CERB. Uh, I don't have to right. go back so to work. But what you should know, employers do to get their employees to give up the CERB and come back to work? What do you recommend? Well, I just said, you, you, you wean them off by saying, okay, the, next, the second time around you get it. Yeah. It's, it's not 2000 it's 1500 And you some say, well, gee, that's still better than minimum wage. I don't know if it is. They might say that. Okay, okay. the third CERB, you'll come down to 1000 And then, you, in other words, you, you wean them off by making it less and less attractive to stay on the CERB. 
And for those people who genuinely just can't get a job, then you have a bridge or transition over to the regular unemployment insurance program with all of its rules and regulations to ensure that people are seeking employment. And I'm do you not worried, uh, Kelly, very quickly, before we run out of time, I'm not worried yeah. ultimately once the economy gets going again, and it will get going again, and I don't mean in 20 years, I mean like next year, because what's working in the favor is, is that as we speak, week after week, month after month, boomers of my age are exiting the workforce. And notwithstanding this temporary enormous unemployment caused by the shutdown, we are looking at shortages going forward over the next 1, 2, 5, 10, 15, 20 years because there's going to be less and less people because the boomers, are the number of elders over 65 are going to go from 12% of the population to 25% of the population. So our problem going forward is going to be a shortage of workers, not too many workers. That's why I'm not worried. We just need a wind-down provision in the CERB to incentivize people to return to work that have the chance and the opportunity. Right. And if we've got a shortage of workers, then we may see wages go up. That's right. To, to I would rather let market forces do it because, and it's not because I'm an ideologue. It's just that if the market forces do it, then that's an optimal allocation uh, because the price system is at work. That's how the price system works, including labor prices, the price of labor. Whereas when government does it, what you're doing is creating it's it's no different than wage controls. By the way, price controls and re- regulating uh, wages is a form of price controls, and we know from 300 years, price controls don't work. And because if there's an alternative mechanism in this instance to the market, I mean, an alternative mechanism to the legislative price, then what will employers do? Well, if you're a big company like a Loblaws, Home Depot, you just go to automated checkout counters and you phase out the, the human checkout counters. And that's how you get rid of it in big companies. And small businesses, how do they deal with it if they can't afford it? They go to business. They fail.